Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Banerjee Wright's Matt Creasy, All3 Media International's Sally Habershaw, Pulse Films' Thomas Bensky and E1's Stuart Baxter about what the US studio's growing focus on homegrown originals for their own streaming services means for independent producers and distributors. C21's Content LA On Demand virtual conference wrapped last week with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the US television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. From the shift to streaming, the challenges of keeping production going during the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement and a move towards more international focused development, these discussions tackled the gamut of issues and opportunities confronting Hollywood right now and the status of US programming on the global stage. Banerjee Wright's Executive Vice President of Sales, Co-Productions and Acquisitions, Matt Creasy, All3 Media International America's Executive Vice President, Sally Habershaw, Pulse Films founder and Chief Executive, Thomas Bensky, and E1 President of International Distribution, Stuart Baxter, spoke to Adam Benzine about what the US studio's growing focus on homegrown originals for their own streaming services means for independent producers and distributors. I have four titans with me today. Uh, We have uh, Matt Creasy. He's the EVP Sales Co-Productions and Acquisitions for Banerjee Rights. Hi, Matt. Hello, Adam. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for taking the time. Uh, Joining Matt is Sally Habershaw. She's the EVP for the Americas for All3 Media International. How's it going, Sally? Great. Thank you, Adam. Nice to be here. Next on my little Zoom panel, I have Thomas Bensky. He's the founder and CEO of Pulse Films in the UK. Hello. Fantastic. And last but by no means least, Stuart Baxter, the president of international distribution for E1. Good afternoon. Fantastic. So we're going to talk about the changing relationship with Hollywood. And broadly by Hollywood, we're talking about streaming services, cable networks, film studios, all of those big companies that are broadly making this smorgasbord of what we call content out in the US. And as we all know, it's been an extremely tumultuous 12 months. It's still pretty tumultuous. Things are all over the place. What I'd like to do to start is just get each of you to talk about a recent deal or a couple of recent deals um, that each of your firms has has undertaken in the past 12 months and talk a little bit about what that deal looked like, who the partners were that were involved. Was it a a big co-production? Was it complex? What were the right situations like? We'll keep this quite concise and we'll use that as a launch pad to dive into uh, a broader discussion about what the market is looking like. So Matt, perhaps if we start with Banerjee Rights, how's the past 12 months been for you and and uh, bring up a couple of projects that have really stood out for you guys. Um, thanks, Adam. Well, it's been a it's been a very positive twelve months um, on the scripted side, particularly with you know, the, the labels that we have under the uh, Banerjee banner now with the acquisition last year. Um, probably the title our our focus on today is a show that's just gone into production two weeks ago in the UK called Chloe for BBC One, written by Alice Seabright, uh, who was a, a director and writer on Sex Education for Netflix and had done a few independent films before that. But this is her first um, solely written TV series. And she's also directing five episodes as well. Uh, that stars Erin Doherty, um, most recently of The Crown. That um, started production in April. So BBC came in on that very early on. And then last year, we we took that out looking for a co-production partner uh, probably around June last year at the height of the pandemic, actually. So it was the first time we'd gone into that world of proper Zoom pitching, which 
was new, but actually adaptable very quickly and actually found the, the, the pitches very engaging. So that came, um, we were fortunate with that one. That came down to a bidding war actually across uh, all streamers, uh, all the major streamers and uh, became a, a, a complicated process to get that one closed. But um, as was recently announced, we closed that with Amazon. Uh, originally, that was going to be for only certain territories. So it was going to be a second window in the UK after the BBC and then certain other territories. But the nature of how those negotiations went on in terms of the competition became a global deal where Amazon will be taking first window as an Amazon original outside of the UK and then will be coming into the UK uh, a certain amount of time after the BBC's premiere. So that really, the Amazon component to that was vital in terms of getting that show made. Uh, as partnerships go with BBC and Amazon together with Banerjee Rights in the middle of it as well, financing, it's been a, it's been a good experience so far. But that's a, that's a major co-production in the middle of the pandemic and the production was pushed back. But we started recently and uh, so far so good in terms of um, obviously extra costs because of COVID. But apart from that, everything is running smoothly. So that's that's probably the best example I can give you the last 12 months. And did that go from then being a situation where the BBC was the primary financier and you were looking for an American to fill out the remaining 30, 40% of the budget? But then if Amazon came in and took all rights for the rest of the world, did they end up being the bigger financier on the project? Yes, they did. Yeah. That's so an interesting example of this, this changing dynamic. And, and I, that's one of the things I really want to dive into is this complexity with co-production. Sally, if we go to you and all three media, I know sure. you've been doing a lot of interesting uh, co-production work over at all three yeah yeah for sure um you know i will say this past year has been uh has brought great opportunity certainly with the proliferation of the new svods you know peacock paramount discovery plus and and equally maintaining business with pre-existing clients like hbo max hulu sundance now acorn so so the business business is in good shape uh particularly for co-productions we're certainly seeing entry of newcomers into the into that space uh, specific examples for us, um, I guess the, the two most obvious ones for us this year have been bringing in pre-existing IP or a reboot of something. So we did All Creatures Great and Small with Masterpiece, uh, classic James Herriot uh, piece of IP. Uh, Masterpiece were the most obvious partner to go with in that instance. And certainly it's it's been an incredibly fruitful uh, show for them. They've, you know, delivered, I think, 200% above their ratings and it's, it's certainly returning. Uh, conversely, um, another example of bringing a co-production into the marketplace was working with Russell T. Davis on It's a Sin and HBO Max. You know, those were conversations when HBO Max was fairly new into the co-production space. Uh, per Matt's example, they came in at, at the US level and then have expanded with their international rollout. Uh, again, I think it's been tremendously successful for them and I hope we'll, we'll sit in the awards category for them. So, yeah. so the co-production space... Uh, is a key strategy for us in this territory and, and certainly expanding. And for, for It's a Sin, was that a deal that covered HBO, the linear channel and HBO Max or it was just with HBO Max? It, it, it is just with HBO Max. Uh, I suspect going forwards there will be a lot more synergy between the two, partly because they, they sit under Casey now and, oh. and the, the two networks. I mean, if, if you watch, if something's premiering on HBO Linear, it'll immediately simulcast on HBO Max. So I think at this stage, now everything will be rolling out mm -hmm, for sure thomas we're going to dive to pulse films how are you doing i'm all right i'm all right <laughs> 
Um, but I guess the one that I can, I can think I, I can think about it makes sense is Gangs because Gangs was a fairly complex Gangs of London. That's the show we did for Sky. Um, it was quite interesting. I think for I don't know who exactly is in the audience, but is the journey of a show nowadays is is quite fascinating, right? You can I don't think you can set out with just one clear idea because we started the show. It was a Sky HBO co-production when HBO um, when AT and T bought HBO. We 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 were going to go on Cinemax and, and Cinemax's journey was going to finish once the merger happened. So they very amazingly and kindly kind of gave us the mandate to be able to find a new buyer. And that's when we ended up with AMC who have now come on board and committed to multiple seasons and so on. So I think it's an interesting, like, you know, I would have never guessed that it would be so iterative. And I think what we're seeing right now to, to Sally's point is the proliferation of buyers just means that things are evolving during the life of a show. It's, it's, and you know, again, we got lucky because we ended up finding a great home. AMC is an awesome brand and so on. But but there are so many ways to cut the cake right now. And I think producers specifically are needing to be much more sophisticated, relying much more. And I can see like, you know, all of the other panelists is part of much bigger groups where that knowledge, that sales capacity is actually so key right now. It's not anymore where you just have one route and you just go to, to broadcaster and just get by or to the streamers. I think there are so many intricate layers that can can change the destiny creatively and commercially of a show. So um, I think what we're learning is to just be a lot more um, attentive, I guess, around the commercial structure of a show from the beginning and how to pivot and iterate as it goes along. Yes. Sky in particular in the UK has been doing a lot of really interesting co-productions with a wide variety of partners. Is it the case for you, Pulse is, is, is London headquartered, that yes. but the UK broadcaster is still your first port of call? Are you taking it first off to BBC Sky Channel 4 or are you or do you will you take it straight straight away first off to the Americans well we're a bit of a weird one because although we're headquartered in London we're not really a British company if you think about Pulse like we have offices in New York in LA in Paris in Germany in Italy so I think what we are is I think a little bit more project specific there's shows that actually we've to be honest my answer to this which I think is an answer I believe in every genre that we work in is find a champion who actually needs that show more like we see you know and I think talked about it before Shits Creek you know was on pop like pop was not a destination where you sit here and go hey I definitely want my show on pop or this is the way to do it but actually it makes a channel AMC to a certain extent got made out of two shows so I just think that it's about learning and leaning into the sales process and, and much more than than before and I think you know for sure for us like we're not relying on broadcasters only but everyone behaves slightly differently so if you have a show that really caters for the BBC, you have to learn how to engage with the BBC, which is very different than the way the US pitching works, which is much more theatrical, a little bit more of an auction. That doesn't work, in our opinion, in the UK. So it's, I think you just have to be a little bit more curated and attentive around how you take a show out. And 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 and, and the partnerships, fun enough, are not just with broadcasters, but we're finding that leaning into to, to groups like the groups that are in here is actually quite helpful, which is something when it was much more singular, I would say, as a producer, you give up a lot. But right now, to understand the complexity is maybe the difference between your show getting made or not getting made. Yes, yes. Well, we'll go. We'll get back further into pitching a little bit later. I want to go next to Stuart, uh, Stuart Baxter with E1. E1 now, of course, a Hasbro company. Yes. Ha- how are things? How has the past twelve months been for you? What's the situation been like in terms of getting shows away? The, the, I think it's probably fair to say yeah. we were going to obviously be going through quite a bit of change care of the Hasbro acquisition uh, within shows and show financing. Uh, it really 
hasn't changed things that much. I'll give you a couple of examples of shows that we, we have produced during sort of COVID. But the, the process of uh, which shows to produce and how we finance them has pretty much remained consistently. It's just great having somebody behind you who's, who's got deeper pockets than you know uh, an indie does. Um, one show we, we've done uh, actually just went out last week for the first time, Cruel Summer, which is for Freeform, part of the Disney ABC stable. Uh, it's a uh, fabulous sort of psychological thriller. Uh, Jessica Beale uh, and Michelle Purple producing. But the interesting thing was that was it started off as really pretty much an old school US network commission. And we looked at it and said, okay, we like that. We think it's going to work all around the world. We'll deficit finance the balance. Uh, we launched it sort of last May screenings last September. When I say launched, it took the show, the talent and everything to market and the scripts. Suddenly, we found we got a lot of international interest in the show, and we were faced with a couple of streamer bids and what I call a sum of the parts bids from all the international broadcasters. Um, in the end, what we did is we ended up doing a streamer deal, but for streamer to have the rest of the world. But we did it in such a way that we could keep an early second window. That was really important to us because we had all of these international broadcasters who wanted the show as well. So that was a, dare I say it, a little bit of cake and eating it, uh, you know, a great outcome. And it's a great show that deserved it. But we've had lots of other shows that have gone through, you know, much more than the usual. We uh, did a show uh, out of Canada, Family Law, again, brought to us by producers. We didn't initiate this one, but the show had a deficit. Producers couldn't afford to manage that on their own. We stepped in. We thought it was a great show. Uh, almost, you know, we got a great US network uh, behind it. So one of the big four networks. Uh, and now we've actually sold it all around the world. So um, there are signs you can do still do things the traditional way. Uh, as We've got plenty of deals we've done in the interim with the streamers where they're essentially, we've, uh, you know, for higher work. Um, yes. They take all rights, all territories, perpetuity. All rights. And for us, it's all about having a sort of mixed economy. We want a balanced portfolio. And, and that really, that's been the approach through pre-Hasbro and now in, in our first year. Yes. I mean, it has seemed that for, for a long time, there was a, just a two-lane approach. Either you do a show for a big streaming giant and they take all rights, all territories, perpetuity, and they pay you a big chunk of money up front to make it. Or there's the putting together a deal in which you're able to hold on to your rights and different people take different windows for different amounts. And that's broadly been how things have been seen. But it's a lot more complex than that, as we know. And one of the things that I got speaking to all four of you beforehand is that actually even those companies like Disney Plus and Netflix and Amazon are prepared to work, are prepared to be flexible. Matt, you mentioned, you know, the complex discussions that you had with Amazon over what territories would go on there. Now, there have been a huge number of streaming platforms that have launched over the past 12 months, and there are more to come. How have you found dealing with them versus um, your past experiences dealing with broadcasters, for example, dealing with the BBC and quite clearly defined what the BBC would want, what I play out rights they would want? How have you found the new streaming platforms to deal with it? Is it a different sort of negotiation, Matt? Perhaps you can weigh in on, on the Banerjee front. Well, I think what everybody said is set the same for us in terms of it's, uh, it's an array of type of deals depending on the show, depending where the show comes from, etc. So not one shoe fits all, as it were. But just in terms of that piece with focusing on the British content that we produce and that, you know, the BBCs and the ITVs and Channel 4s of this world, 
I, I, I confess to sort of like a heavy sigh when the deal starts coming into the UK when we find our co-production partner because that is the most complex part of the negotiation now is that second window argument in the UK and everyone is different and everyone is fighting their corner and it, it's tricky um, because the big streamers if they are taking that global and therefore want that second window in the UK quite rightly say well we're paying X amount of money so we we feel we have a right to have a say in what happens to the show and where it goes the originating broadcasters in the UK begrudgingly will will maybe come on board in some instances but it but it's not easy because they feel well hang on we're the commissioner and this is our territory etc so that's that's always tricky and i'm in the middle one at the moment which i, I can't really talk about but it, it's but it's so complicated that the uk may even drop out of this situation so i think that's how the streamers are if it grows into that area but just on a general sense of the because a lot of these streamers that the new streamers are not coming into the uk yet so let's say um it's the hbo maxes of this world the peacocks etc the experience I mean, we've done quite a bit with hbo max so far and the experience has been terrific i mean they they're, they're great partners they're great creative partners they're great they understand the content and they really love the content so from that point of view it's great the deals they're hbo so they can dictate to a degree certain elements which you you, you sort of weigh up and but but the experience with all the other streamers and I'll include the the Sundance Nows and the Acorns as really important partners for all of us as well. Certainly in Sally to my world. Yeah, Yeah, because we do Good Karma Hospital, for example, which is an ITV show, and we do that with Acorn. And they are now 50-50 partners on that show because to get that show made. So we we feel that with all the glitz and glamour around these, these absolute monsters, we have very strong relationships with these other levels and the PBSs of this world and come, come into that world as well. I mean, like say, we have Grandchester with them. We've run seven seasons as co-productions with them on that. These are really important partners to us as much as those those massive streamers are. Yeah, and Sally, I see you nodding your head there. Has it been similar experiences on your end? Yeah, certainly. You know, our, our pre-established uh, long-term uh, partners in the, the likes of Sundance Now, Acorn, PBS, Masterpiece, consistent um, partners for sure you know we we have at least six projects with each of those networks but you know the new shiny toy is very appealing um and they all clearly have very deep pockets uh and we we have entered in multiple arrangements with with most of them we're still working out a couple of them and i think you know uh it's fair to say that a couple of them are still feel as if they're in a slightly generic space and they're trying to work out what their brand is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's a hugely competitive marketplace. And unless you've sort of tethered what your brand is outside of the library of the content you have, it's quite difficult to attract the right consumer uh, or subscriber. Um, and I think there's then, a bit of that going on. Yeah. Conversely, is it making it harder for, for example, UK and European broadcasters? Because it really beggars the question, why do co-production at all? When you have a company like you've sort of alluded all of you to the deep pockets that these streamers have. When you have a company like Netflix that can pay uh, $469 million for two movies, two Knives Out movies, surely a lot of the shows that you're bringing to them, they could afford to fully finance r- right away. So Possibly Netflix, but not not all of them have budgets of $17 billion. 
dollars to spend. Um, they also so you- say no a lot to shows. So, you know, there's, that's why you need the other world. You know, and I think if, if all roads led to Netflix, then we all might as well pack up. But that's just not the reality of the situation. Um, you might not get a show picked up by Netflix for two years. So there's, the other world is is as important. You know, you, you have to look at what it is. Like, you know, a show where you give all rights and so on, unless you have an, like, you know, you talk about Knives Out and I think the industry is so quick at picking up these huge successes where the economics somehow sound great but the, the you know as a as an ip creator you know sometimes you're better off taking a lower license controlling your destiny and betting on the long term which is impossible to do inside certain ecosystems so i think i think Stuart said it it's it's the world of a mixed economy isn't it it's a mixture of of budget levels of deals of of configuration and so on and i think co-production to me are an essential and vital way of being able to get the right show made in the right way because if you are you know the, one of the dangerous things is in those extremely rich kind of um streaming deals is, is, is it becomes very binary so if you don't fit then you have no other choice whereas i think what we're talking about here is is, is the ability to have optionality as a, as a creator as an ap creator is, is, is essential actually and I, what we found is the more options you have the better deal terms you can drive and and if you go to some of those buyers without necessarily that leverage then you end up subsidizing a multi-trillion dollar company, which I've done and I feel very upset about sometimes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we've, we've talked about this mixed economy and, and one of the things I'd like to steer the conversation towards is the role of IP in this because increasingly with seeing people talk about the value of IP, you know, not a huge fan of phrases like IP and content, but it does seem like, again, not to over-rely on HBO Max as an example, but when you see their key lineup, Dune, based on a book, Mortal Kombat, a reboot of a video game franchise, Wonder Woman is a superhero, Matrix reboot, that there is this, this uh, Godzilla, that's the other big one that they have, you know, all things that have proven brand recognition, proven IP, and, you know, Stephen King book adaptations and reboots of 80s TV series, it can seem from the outside like nothing new is getting greenlit. Of course, we know new things are getting greenlit. You have the plea bags and the I may destroy you of the world. But how much does that feed into, Stuart, perhaps on the E1 example, that might be a good example because you have a, a bunch of brands that you that have joined E1 as part of the Hasbro merger. How, how important is existing IP and the stuff that you're pitching? For us, it's, it was a huge part of the logic of the sort of acquisition by uh, Hasbro or, or E1. E1 was very much an independent and created and fun new IP and you know had you know fairly significant degree of success but was still a small independent the reality is that Hasbro aside from the deep pockets has 1500 toys uh within that 1500 toys there is a huge number which could be fabulous entertainment projects and one of the reasons why you know frankly we bought in Mike Lombardo to head up our TV business Mike is absolutely passionate about the really the two things that matter most is great IP with great talent. He's forever sort of repeating that on every project. He says that's how we'll get best, you know, quality, but also how we'll have more most interest. He said it's not by accident Disney has got 100 plus subscriptions very quickly because Disney has a huge number of franchises. Having bought Marvel and Star Wars and Lucas and, you know, Pixar, it has a huge 
set of brand franchises and is able to roll them out. And when you hear their annuals and they're saying they're going to be 10 new Marvel inside a year series coming through, you go, wow. Um, and I think the consumer, the audience can engage and that's why they subscribe to them. So for us, um, we with Mike, we've attached Bo Willerman to write Risk because Bo, you know, Frank had done House of Cards and he's very good at uh, manipulation. That's what House of Cards is all about. Uh, and Risk is a game of sort of global dominance and manipulation. So I think that was an inspired choice. He's brought in uh, Jonathan Entwistle uh, writing on Power Rangers. He's brought in uh, Clarkson Twins on Dungeons and Dragons to establish talent, to establish brands, to drive these projects forward. So clearly we think that's half our development budget. The other half is in the true new and independent stuff. So again, we believe it's about a mixture of sources. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yes, and I, I would imagine that that what I'm also picking up there is that E1 is, in some sense, is moving in a more family-friendly direction in terms of what the majority of your slate's going to be, since you have, as you say, this brand affinity with um, Hasbro. I don't see too many E1 Gaspar Noe commissions uh, in, in no, the pipeline. I think there's plenty in you know Dungeons and Dragons. There's plenty of slaying, and in the various other worlds, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to turn our back to a project like a Game of Thrones. You know, is it family suitable? You know, it's, it's entertainment for a very wide universe of people, and that's really what the Hasbro. Uh, we wouldn't do anything offensive. That's for sure. You know, the, if the goal is to offend, we, you won't find us. You know, close to it. Yes, Sally, tell me is, if it's. Not not existing IP that you're selling, if it's a new show that you're trying to get away, what are the elements that are coming into play in the conversations that you'll have? All the potential drama investments that we have, uh, you know, we're constantly reviewing them. And I think, you know, first and foremost, does it fit within the US marketplace? Is it culturally relevant? Um, and then the pieces, you know, who's the right partner? I think the most important thing is understanding your customer and what they're looking for. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have taken all creatures great and small to HBO Max. Um, so so, so you need to know who your partner is, what they want, what their core remit is, uh, what their objective is in the long term. That's the biggest piece. Um, if you have a pre-existing piece of IP, that certainly opens the door. But equally, you know, having a writer uh, like Russell T. Davies can open the door. Or sometimes it's a huge piece of casting. Uh, Fleabag, you know, was one of those exceptional experiences where there was a little piece of tape. Um, I mean, this is what, five, five years ago six years ago when it came out and I think this was pre the co-production sort of full evolution of co-production in this marketplace because when that went out everybody was charmed by it but I don't you know the risk factor was a bit too great at that stage even though it wasn't massive investment there were actually only two key players who bid for it and you know Amazon stuck by it and and championed it to the bitter end mm -hmm. um, so you, you do certainly when you have that really original uh, material out there um, you, you go to the right part, partner with it um, yeah I mean it's really about understanding your customer even that's a good example of, of some of this UK US tension because with Fleabag uh, when it came to the end of its hugely acclaimed second season Phoebe said that's it I'm done I've told the story I want to tell and BBC on the UK side were like that's fantastic 12 episodes that's great and Amazon on the US side were like hang on I thought we were going to have 10 seasons in a movie this is we're just getting cooking with this we've just won a boatload of Emmys now is the time to recommission it and you know get they are in partnership with her that they are in partnership with her yeah, now, they're doing so. stuff with her that's that's true 
true. But it's, yeah. it is interesting that, you know, shows that difference in priorities there. You know, BBC wanting that cultural cachet and Amazon wanting big hit that can be returnable. Um, so what are, what are those key elements then if it's if it's not pre-existing IP? Is it the showrunner, the writer and or the lead star? I mean, will that you take helps. something to, to, to market if you don't have one of those things? No, 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 no. I mean, if you, if you have a brilliant original script that you think uh, fulfills somebody's remit, you, you take it out. I mean, you know, we've been, well, all of us have been doing this for quite some time now. So we, we know what's in the marketplace already. We know what's working uh, for each of the respective uh, platforms, networks. And it's really about sizing up um, where something is relevant. I, I also think the, the it feels like the writer has become so, like, it's, it's the talent to open a lot of doors Um Certainly, I've noticed in the last year that sometimes before we were, well, we'd have the writer and we'd have the director maybe on board and maybe even a bit of a cast as well before we took a show out. Um, and that's also because we were able to sort of set up before that. But we, we're finding that a certain writer can, can take us through to pitching straight away and open those doors because people are very keen on working with writers. And that's with new up and coming writers as well as established writers. I mean, we were, we, we have quite a nice sort of balance between, so we're working with Stephen Knight at the moment on a new series for the BBC called Rogue Heroes which is based on an existing IP and Stephen Knight opens every door possible because he's brilliant and very established but at the same in the same breath Alice Seabright wasn't particularly known but people had read her work and were particularly like this is someone we want to get I'm working with very quickly and we're working with um, Abby Ajayi at the moment who did a bit of work on how to get away with murder but she's a British writer living back in the UK on a show called Riches which is for ITV and people People just want to hear what her ideas are on her story, etc. So the writer has become really front and centre in terms of when we're taking shows out. Um, other shows, we might wait a bit longer for those other pieces of talent to come in, but the writer has become a massive talent, um, I think, in trying to put set these shows up. And with these... I, sorry, Adam, I was just going to sort of endorse what um, Matt was saying. More often than not now, when we are actually going out to pitch, you know, before, I can remember going out with The Rookie, and it was Nathan Fillion going in with Mark Gordon, and then Alexi Hawley to pitch the network. And by the way, that was one pitch and an order in the room, which never happens. But now that really the showrunner writer is more critical than the, the talent in front of the screen, uh, because they're the ones that get sort of, well, where's this story goes? What are those story arcs? What is, how does the story evolve? Can this go multiple seasons? Uh, and they have to be very, very credible when they when they tell those stories. Do, do these new streaming platforms trust you to know when is the right time to bring them a pitch, or are they more specific in terms of when they want you to come to them with projects? And I imagine it will probably vary differently between Peacock and Disney Plus and, and Amazon. But I mean, what are you finding, Stuart, in terms of when is the right time to pitch a project? I, I think they do trust that we have a good idea. Sally's example of you know all creatures great and small and take it. But we all know the sort of thing I was on a call with with Mike this week and we were talking about and we were going okay there's probably four doors that you'd go in uh, with this show you know out of you know 20 or 30 that are commissioning in the US but for that show there literally was four options so we were talking about okay who to approach in those four uh, and whether this was you know which one of the originals would, would be more what's the word drawn to a particular project like this and the talent involved whether writing or otherwise so but there 
if they are also expecting, they come and tell us sometimes. Netflix are pretty good, if not the best, at telling us what they're looking for. And they're looking for a lot of different genres, but they seem to have done their, their knowledge of their algorithm and what they're looking for. But also they do a lot by demographics. We've, we've covered A, B, and C already in those territories. We need D, okay? So, you know, but, but everybody's pretty good at it. Yes. Is there a, is there a sense from them of at what point something is overpackaged? Because as we, we've mentioned earlier, they want to have a degree of control, especially if it's a co-production, unless perhaps it's something incredibly specific like Scandi crime set in the village with Scandi actors. Um, can you have a situation where you come to them and you say, this is the writer, this is the showrunner, and these are the two leads. And they say, actually, we like the show, but that's not that doesn't work for us in terms of who the actor is, or actually we would have wanted this showrunner with that IP. Is there a risk of that? We've certainly seen circumstances where, again, different networks. Apple at the moment is, in particular, is very keen on big theatrical talent being involved in projects. It's not just by accident. You have Nicole Kidman and uh, Reese Witherspoon on Good Morning. They do like big theatrical talent, and we know that. Um, and we've taken projects into them, and they go, well, actually, we like the project, but you know, up the talent on that a bit. Uh, and then we go, but that ups the budget. Uh, um, so, you know, and sometimes, you know, we all have a different what, what we think is right. Uh, I'm a commercial person, so I don't really input much to that. Uh, but the creatives and Mike feel sometimes a show is is best with particular talent. Yes. Thomas, has that been your experience over at Pulse in terms of which... I think the packaging thing is a bit of a nod more than a science in a way. I think it, it, it's, it's very easy for the package to be wrong if you attach the wrong person. But with, when you have someone undeniable, you can actually be the thing that kind of everyone says well i guess my experience is i don't know if people know exactly what they want i think people are trying to share information to help guide you but ultimately at least how we work is is, is a combination of everything we talked about it has to be very authored so the author whether that's the writer the writer director someone that has to be someone the hook has to fit inside the brand of the of the of of of, of, of the buyer and then the package it, it to, to me it's it's, it's a double-edged sword because sometimes it can feel nice to have someone known or known face but actually making the wrong choices could be the end of that too at the same time sometimes when you have to strip on someone that is so right and the role is actually the perfect role and so on then yes absolutely go and commit to that because it can help give the buyer a much clearer view of the intention of the show i think the job more and more is to communicate through the page first but also through the vision and the intention where is this show gonna live where is the tone where does it exist and 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 hopefully you know, create that desire for someone to buy because of those things. So packaging, I think, is not something that is required, something that should be done very carefully, especially, I think, when you work with, you know, more American counterparts, people tend to overpackage and have executive producers over executive producers. We're not into that. Like, it's people that actually are additive and define the show even further. Otherwise, there's no point. The same with actors. Like, a good actor, good bit of casting should wait for later. The undeniable person that is like, that is the one actor that should make this this show it's a different story yes i want to circle us back around to <clears throat> the rights conversation and take a look to the future look 12 months or so ahead you're all rights experts so you're the right people to ask um, what do you think the challenges are going to be in this space you're watching it evolve you're watching the american space evolve where you're now having 
these giant companies that have linear channels and have streaming services as well. The rights complication continues to get more and more complex globally. What do you think is going to be a challenge or where do you anticipate that there's going to be longer conversations to have as you go forward with projects over the next year? Matt, perhaps you could dive in. I think it all comes down to what the value proposition is. We are very, and I'm sure of it, we are very happy to open up a array of rights of people when they are willing to pay the money. So, and I think the difficulties you have, this is globally, this isn't just to the US or whatever, the difficulties you see certainly in the, the linear and then the VOD space and you want to go linear first and VOD or and then the AVOD components and all those different areas. If someone wants to take those off the table, then they, then they, there's a value to that. And that's where you bump into the, the difficulties in negotiations. And, you know, I can point to several, you know, I don't work in the UK, but I know very well Sky, for example, or a company who want this set of rights and they're very strict about it, but they're willing to stand up and put a value on that. So people are, okay, well, that makes sense. So there's always going to be this push and pull and there's going to be a much greater push and pull on what rights to give, what holdbacks, when can you then exploit other rights? I hate to be sort of bring it down to coins and notes, but it really, it's the value proposition which dictates that going forward. It's always going to be the debate. Right. But the the thing that the the cash proposition is arguing over is, is primarily windowing to take from that? Yeah, windowing, exactly. Or if you want to take it all off the table, then there's a value to that. Yeah, absolutely. Sally, you're nodding, you're nodding in agreement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's it's project specific, but um, certainly the big premium uh, dramas. Yeah, it's it's about the license term, the holdback and the rights, first and foremost. And then you're, then you're wrangling in terms of what is most important to them relevant to that holdback. But I mean, even if you jump across to the AVOD business, you know, that's generally looking at the moment, the model is non-exclusive um, across big library deals, and it, it can be very lucrative. And I think we'll see a lot more growth in that, that space specifically as well. Do you as a seller and do you all broadly as sellers feel like you're in a position of strength, like it's a seller's market at the moment, given how many different American platforms there are? Yeah, um, for every good day you have, though, <laughs> then you have a totally terrible day the next day. So I don't think we should ever get carried away. I know. I think you, I think you have to be super cautious with that statement. There, there, there certainly seem to be opportunities in the marketplace, uh, certainly in co-pro dramas, in, in big library conversations, and factuals really opening up now as well. Mm-hmm. But I am hesitant to make that statement. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing it's probably not an overstatement to say that you all have some projects that you're not able to get away, the, the rights are proving too complex or the fish aren't biting. I think it's one it's one of the reasons why, and sometimes pe- you know, people forget, it's one of the reasons why you need that mixed economy is because you won't get all your projects away. And if you did them all for hire, the returns you get for hire don't cover the development costs for projects which people don't buy. So all the investment we make, the overhead we carry, the infrastructure, really that, we get the return on that really through the projects that we are owning ourselves and, and take, taking risk. The for hire stuff is is sort of a PL play. It's not a, a balance sheet. It doesn't give you anything. So that's why you need to have both. Yes. I wanted to just draw on a point that Sally mentioned about factual there and bring Thomas in just briefly. Pulse obviously does a great number of documentaries, a lot of music documentaries. What's the landscape like for premium documentaries? It certainly seems to me as a docs guy that it's, there's been a real growth in this space. Um, we are starting to see large seven, eight figure sum deals. 17 million was paid for the Billie Eilish music documentary by Apple. Um, $10 million for Knock Down the House, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez documentary that went to Netflix. So you guys are in the premium doc space. Is that 
has that broadly been your experience or what's it like? Absolutely. Massively. 10 years ago, it was a labor of love. And we were all really in that premium dog space. Like we weren't really a factual company. So I think the big difference is like high-end documentaries, specifically geared to the streamers. It's just an economy that didn't exist before. Simple as that. Like those deals just did not exist. So that market has been created. Um, and I think what's interesting is the industry is not quite settled yet because a lot of the feature doc industry was born out of people making documentaries for love, for specific ideas and so on, not necessarily being able to service $10 million series for Netflix and so on. So I, I just think we're going to see in the next few years, I think a little bit more of the of the settling of that economy. But yeah, I think for sure it's it's, it's, it's a hugely um, you know valuable part of our business. And to your point about IP, it's funny enough, the reason there's a huge push into, into to music docs is because that's an, you know, um, an inbuilt audience. And I think that's what we sing. And what IP means to us sometimes is that you just come to market with something that has a stronger chance or less resistance to cut through. And so Billie Eilish is justified to have a, a price point that high because you go, I'm not going to have to market necessarily this in the same way that I'll have to market a brand new show idea and so on. So I think we're just seeing every buyer trying to find ways to cut through and create what we call moments of culture. And I think music docs are just a, a, a symptom of that or a consequence of that where, where people are saying, well, actually, you know, you have the inbuilt audience that kind of follows you into that. Matt Creasy, Sally Habershaw, Thomas Bensky and Stuart Baxter speaking to Adam Benzine as part of C21's Content LA On Demand. Video versions of all the sessions are available on c21media.net if you're a pro subscriber and there'll be more from the event in the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.